Last year, I had some problems with a series of uh, faulty phones. It all started when I killed my reliable phone, my wonderful, trusty, reliable phone, by dropping it in um, water. <clears throat> Actually, it slipped from my hand as I walked into the bathroom, and I was a good six feet away from the demonic little opening of the toilet. And, uh, and the problem was I was too quick. As it slipped out of my hand, I quickly put my hand under it so it wouldn't smash on the ground. And it hit my palm, and I managed, instead of grabbing it, to just lift it up. It did, this is amazing, it did an amazing three-and-a-half twist flip and landed right in the toilet. Gave a whole new meaning to flip phone. Um, <laughs> so we got a new one from insurance. You like that? We got a new one from insurance, uh, but it was a dud. The new one they sent us never worked right. It wouldn't charge. Very kindly, they sent a new phone the very next day. It was also a dud, making me doubt whether they were so kind after all. The next day, they sent a third phone. Uh, if you're keeping score at home, it was my fourth phone in four days. This one finally worked. Hooray, I had a correct functioning phone. How many of you have ever had a similar experience where you received a product or a service that was unreliable? Raise your hand if you've ever had unreliable, untrustworthy service. Okay. Does that untrustworthy service endear you to that provider, to that, in my case, insurance company? Yes or no? No, it certainly does not. We want things and people in whom we can trust. So, let's enjoy the positive blessings of trustworthiness. I need a few volunteers. I would like you to name a person or a thing that has always been trustworthy for you. A person or a thing, always been reliable for you. Yes. God, well said. Amen. Always true. Yes. Your parents, and you're not even sitting by them. That is really remarkable. Well done. That's quite good. Yes. Yeah, nicely said. Hang on, I'm going to get one from over here. Yes, sir. Your what? Ice cream. <laughs> yes, I agree. That is always well. If it's good ice cream, you know, bluebell, some, yeah, that's right. Okay, amen. Well, now I'm hungry. Um, Thinking about trustworthiness, things and people who have been trustworthy for you. And every one of us thinks of, of, of certain things. Let's turn it around. How about you? Where would other people place you in the reliable category or the unreliable one? Think about this. Is there anyone on this planet who has any reason at all to see you as untrustworthy in any way? Think honestly. You see, the truth is that almost all of us need to grow in our trustworthiness. And that's why we're studying Nehemiah. Our biblical hero, Nehemiah, has eight great character traits, eight awesome traits that we're studying that can inspire us and shape us. And one of those is his reliability, his integrity, his trustworthiness. The book of Nehemiah displays three roles that Nehemiah filled. And we're going to look at these three roles this morning. His dependability shines in his actions through each of these roles. Let's start with his position as cupbearer. Uh, open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1. And let's read from uh, the very end of chapter 1, actually the, the very last sentence in chapter 1, the end of verse 11. We'll start there. Nehemiah 1, 11. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer, the king being Artaxerxes, the, the emperor of Persia, Medo-Persia. Chapter 2. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Stop there. As cupbearer to the Persian king, Nehemiah was trustworthy with the emperor's life. 
Uh, by the way, some people learn best when they write, so every week we provide notes uh, in your worship guide. Look at the bulletin you got when you came in. If you look in there, you'll see that headline on the left-hand side, Nehemiah the cupbearer was trustworthy with the emperor's life. Now let me give you a little historical context so we can get our bearings. The ancient Jews were so exceedingly disobedient that God did as he had promised he would, and he had Israel conquered by Gentiles. The northern kingdom, which went by the name of Israel, was conquered by Assyria. Assyria was a big bully country that harshly controlled the Mediterranean world for about 300 years. Those Israelis were wholesale absorbed into the Assyrian lands, and they never returned. The southern Israeli kingdom, which went by the name of Judah was taken into captivity by this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom of Babylon. Now, Babylon was a, uh, was a, a, a new uh, surprise player on the world stage. It was a very old kingdom that suddenly rose up and became an empire. They ended up conquering all of the Assyrian Empire and actually quite a bit more, including Jerusalem and Judah. Then, after a fairly short but glorious rule, Babylon was overrun by a new player, this one was kind of strange. It was a polyglot Medo-Persian group that built an even bigger empire. And after Persia took over, a few waves of Jews returned back to the lands of Judah. However, many of the Jews stayed in the Persian lands, where, by the way, we know that they enjoyed remarkable religious freedom, more so than in almost any other period in history up to that point. And they also enjoyed a very, very strong economy in Persia. They, they became wealthy. Now, here's what matters for our book of Nehemiah. The Babylonians began a fairly new system of civil service in the world, and, and the Medes pretty much copied that system wholesale. In your notes, I put the salient issues of imperial service in Babylon and in Medo-Persia. Here they are. These are the things that matter to our understanding. The civil service of the empire used people from all over. Really remarkable. Race didn't seem to matter. They were from all over serving in the empire. Public service jobs were highly sought. Highly sought. It's led to a very cutthroat environment. <laughs> Sometimes literally cutthroat environment. Uh, those jobs were based on a merit system, which is, is pretty cool and was unique in the world at that time. It was, it was a little slanted toward those who were nobility. By the way, if you're a student of Asian history, this is similar to what was going on in China at the same time, although we have no idea how much communication they had with each other. Uh, captive servants were usually made eunuchs. Born citizens were not. So, so in your Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into the service of the emperor of Babylon, but they're taken as captives. They were almost certainly made eunuchs. Uh, Nehemiah was born in Persia, and even though he rose up to be this incredibly high position of cupbearer to the king, he almost certainly was not a eunuch. Okay? Uh, certain jobs were exceptionally powerful in the civil service, and among those very powerful jobs was the role of cupbearer to the king. You see, very few Persian monarchs died of old age, so this role was really serious. Their, their cutthroat system made honesty and trustworthiness nearly impossible to get, but it was what they most longed for and most needed. Because of the competitive environment that developed in the administration of this far-flung empire, people were not known for their long-term commitments. They tended to switch loyalties in order to always ride the tide of the most powerful. So I picture the, the Achaemenid empires, uh, the Persian emperors, sitting around their summer palace at Ekbaktana or the winter palace at Susa and, and singing a very lonely early version of Billy Joel's song, Honesty. Really, that's what I remember. Remember the insightful lyrics, Billy? Really good song. If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. You can have the love you need to live. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems so hard to give. I can always find someone to say they sympathize if I wear my heart out on my sleeve a.k.a. Facebook, but I don't want some pretty face to tell me pretty lies 
All I want is someone to believe. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard and mostly what I need from you. Close quote. That is true today. It was true then. And that's why a cupbearer is such a big deal. The emperor sat on a seething mass of intrigue and wealth. The person who brought the great king his cup literally had the emperor's life in his hands. Look at Merv Brenneman's really nice summary. He says, when a servant brought the wine, Nehemiah, as official cupbearer, tasted it and gave it to the king. Can you imagine how many times competing parties must have tried to poison the emperor? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty simple to bribe this official to serve the emperor poisoned wine. In fact, we know of a number of plots like this in Persian history. This person bearing the wine cup needs to be unimpeachable as the great king was trusting that cupbearer with his life. By the way, a few years ago, I was blessed to spend a little time with this cup. This is the Golden Riton. Uh, it was the official feasting wine cup of the Persian emperors for a very, very long time. It is almost surely the one overseen by Nehemiah whenever he was delivering during a feast. Uh, speaking of feasts, Dr. Brenneman continues, really interesting note. I liked it so much I put it in your bulletin. Take a look. When a servant brought the wine, Nehemiah, as official cupbearer, tasted it and gave it to the king. This, uh, and by this he means the scene in Nehemiah chapter 2 that we just read. Uh, this scene most likely took place during a feast. Persian kings regularly had special feasts. According to Herodotus, at a certain feast in the year, the Persian king showed special generosity. That feast may have been related to the new year. By the way, Nisan was the first month in both the Persian year and the Jewish calendar at the same time. Thus, chapter 2 opens with what is very likely a feast scene, and it hinges on Nehemiah's trustworthiness. That trustworthiness has allowed him to build a relationship with the most powerful man on the earth. Now, let's personalize this. Whom would you trust with your life? Who would trust you? Think about that. This is not an esoteric exercise. I'll tell you this matters. This matters for what God is able to do through you. For example, in the early days of this church, there were a number of powerful people in this area who opened doors for the brand new Frisco Bible Church. And they felt freedom to do so because I had built a trust relationship with these people based on honesty and integrity. Despite all of my many flaws, these people knew that I could be trusted. I could be relied upon. And so they then paved the way for God's work to go forth here. The same thing occurs for Nehemiah. King Artaxerxes opens the way for critical work to go forth in Jerusalem. We're going to look at the physical part of that work in a few days. Today, let's examine the spiritual work. Go to, go to chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5 in your Bible, and let's read chapter 5, 1 through 13. Chapter 5 of Nehemiah. This is, this is after the physical work has begun, and we're going to look at the spiritual work that went on. Nehemiah's second role is going to come up here. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we're subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and couldn't say a word. 
Then I said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses them immediately, along with a percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe. That's a, that's a sign of judgment. Shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then, shocking sentence, the people did as they promised. Close quote. Stop there. On the right side of our notes, we headline this as Reformer. This is Nehemiah's second role. Reformer, with, as a reformer, he was trustworthy with God's word. In his reformation work among his people, he changed society by being dependable with Scripture. Here's the situation. Nehemiah's second role was head reformer of life back in Judah. Um, Nehemiah, after he met with Artaxerxes, he led a small group back to Jerusalem where he used his official status to change things for the best. He had plenty of problems outside the Jewish community. But here we see him face the fact that there are serious problems inside the redeemed community. And like... And like many community conflicts, the problem revolves around money. Almost always does. Five manifestations of the problem. Number one, there was a scarcity of affordable food. Most likely, their work on the walls and their building the walls, that, that hindered important duties they needed to be doing agriculturally because we know everybody was working on the wall. Number two, second part of the problem, many of the people who needed grain were low on cash and they had to mortgage their property. That's what's going on in verse 3. Third thing, they faced a severe property tax problem. You thought that was only in Texas, didn't you? Um, property taxes are actually very, very old, one of the oldest kinds of taxation, and apparently Artaxerxes were very high. Uh, many people couldn't pony up the taxes, so what they did was they borrowed from their wealthier Jewish brethren to pay their bill. That problem was exacerbated by high interest rates that were being charged. That should be a red flag for you, more on that in a minute. High interest rates being charged from Jew to Jew. Fourth aspect of the problem, some of these apparently faced a compounded situation. Not only were they in arrears, but they had already sold their children into slavery. Now, this is horrible, but, but don't think of it like modern slavery. That's not what's going on here. There's a provision in Deuteronomy 15 that Moses lays out, God lays out, where if somebody is severely in debt, they can give their offspring to another Jew. It's kind of an indentured servanthood. It lasted six years. And, uh, and at the end of the sixth year, the, the kid was given their freedom or allowed to go back to their family. But they worked for another family to pay off family debt. Still a horrible thing, but that's what they're describing. Fifth part of the problem, at least some of this conflict is pitting Jews of various return groups against each other. The, the ones who were born... Amber Alert, thank you. The ones who were born uh, while Judah was off in exile in Babylon and Persia, those ones who were born in the land, they appear to be the poorest. So... The, they're the poorest, but also there's another poor group. Zerubbabel led the very first return back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, okay? And the people who came with him, their children and their grandchildren are living at the time when Nehemiah is there, and they appear to be very much worse off than the people who returned a whole lot later under Ezra and Nehemiah. See how much later this is? See, the ones who came with Ezra and Nehemiah, they came from a very strong economy in Persia. And so they came back cash-rich, they brought a lot of money back with them from Babylon and Ekbaktana and the other places they lived. So they are in a position to act as creditors, rather rapacious creditors. So five expressions of our conflict. Scarcity of affordable food, mortgages on land to buy grain, 
inability to pay property taxes, offspring sold as slaves to other Jews, and lack of unity among the brethren. Gene Getz has a really great analysis. Look what Dr. Getz says. All these difficulties created an internal crisis in Judah, and they meant double trouble for Nehemiah. Not only were their enemies a constant threat to their security and state of well-being, but now many Jews were actually taking advantage of other Jews. Morale, which was already low because of external pressures, physical exhaustion, and fear, now took another plunge because of these internal problems. What a mess! But Nehemiah finds the solution by pondering Scripture. I'm told by those who know such things that verse 7 is rather difficult to translate. Uh, the Hebrew verb malak... Is, uh, is rendered in wildly divergent ways. In fact, in all the different Bibles that we have here in the room, it probably ones that translated, I consulted myself. Others that say, I talked it over with wise people. Others that say, I thought it over. It's a very difficult word to translate. The problem comes in that that word was used three different ways among three different uh, Semitic language people groups. One group used malak for anoint. Uh, and by the way, anoint in your Bible always has to do with knowledge. Always. When you see anointing, that's, that's not some hocus-pocus. It's talking about knowing something. And so it's learning something. Second group used malak for pondering. Got my thinking beard here. Pondering, thinking. They said malak when they wanted to describe being alone and thinking something over. The third bunch used the same word, malak, to describe seeking counsel from the wisest sources possible. And it really gets confusing for modern translators because all the groups together agreed that malak is best seen in a wise ruler. By the way, that's, hint, that's going to be Nehemiah's third role. We're going to find out that he's also the ruler, uh, the governor of the area. But, but, so they used it of a king. They used it of kingship because a wise king is what? He's anointed. He knows he's king. He, he, he should wisely think things over, and a wise king always seeks counsel from other wise people. Nehemiah did all three as well, thus the use of Malak. And he sought the most important counsel of all. Please tell me, please tell me, what's the most important place to go for wisdom? Please say it. The Bible, you better say the Bible, you're in trouble. Yeah, it's the Bible, that is exactly right. He seeks the Bible. And then he took that knowledge, that anointed knowledge, and he pondered it. Is that true of us? Suppose there's some injustice that really ticks you off, okay? Do you just spout off right away? Nehemiah didn't. He exercised self-control in knowledge. When you're in a conflict with one of your brethren, do you just grab a few proof verses and blast your opponents? Nehemiah didn't. He deeply considered Scripture. We need to take God's anointed knowledge from the Bible and ponder it. That's what makes for trustworthy servants. And that is exactly what Paul commands of you and me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Read it with me, please, all together. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by Him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly examining the word of truth. That's what Nehemiah did. He rightly examined. He pondered the truth, and we should as well. Amen? Now, from what he said, we know which scriptures Nehemiah sought. We know what he thought about. And surely his, uh, his study included this command, Exodus twenty two twenty five: If you lend money to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a money lender to him. You must not charge him interest. Don't charge interest interest. Israelis could charge foreigners interest like all the rest of the world did, but singularly in the ancient world, a Jew could not charge a fellow Jew any usury. It was forbidden. But I know what you're thinking. As you're wondering in that uh, Napoleon Dynamite voice that you like to use when Hebrew words and customs come up, doesn't that mean that they would just refuse to give any money to those people who are in need? I mean, why loan out money if you can't make anything on it, right? 
Great question. Thank you for asking. I'm so glad. God's actually way ahead of you, Pedro. Um, look what he commands in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there's a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your gates in the land your God is giving you, you must not be hard-hearted or trite-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you're to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever he has. So a free loan, no interest loan. Now look in verse 10. Give to him and don't give with a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you do, for there will never cease to be poor people in the world. There will always be poor people, which is no excuse to be hard-hearted. In fact, it should evoke generosity instead. Many of us have had our time under the poverty line, and we are so glad that God's people shared with us without uh, interest strings attached. We are to do the same when we find ourselves with extra. You put all these mosaic passages together, and here's what you see. God calls His people to encourage our brethren through two things, free gifts and what we today would probably call interest-free microloans, Okay. The, the extremes of charging interest or closing our fists to those in need, those are forbidden within the covenant community. By the way, notice what Nehemiah doesn't do. This is fascinating. He doesn't demand a wholesale political solution. Isn't that fascinating? Much to the dismay of our modern-day linens, Nehemiah doesn't demand redistribution of wealth because that is absolutely unscriptural, completely unscriptural. Neither does our hero pander to any of the John D. Rockefellers in his community, excusing their rapacity because he needs their support. He sticks with God's word, and he lets the chips fall where they may. We should do the same. He instructs according to both of God's solutions only. Look, in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, stop the interest. And in verse 11, he instructs open-handedness to those in need. And then, verses 12 and 13 describe how well this worked. The people agreed willingly and one of the most shocking sentences in the Bible, they followed through. They praised God. Even those, is this amazing? Even those people who were losing a major source of their income glorified God for the chance to do right. Isn't that awesome? How about us? Do you well-intentioned social justice warriors ever wonder why older and wiser Christians don't jump on board? Do you ever wonder why they reject your ideas to improve communities? I'll tell you why. It's not that they're greedy. Okay, some very likely are. But their main problem is that you propose a merely political solution to a spiritual problem. And history proves that your Marxist solutions will never lead to God's praise. Never. Do you successful capitalists ever wonder why more liberal people are leaving your churches? They do. They leave churches in droves. It's not that they're deaf to Scripture. I, okay, some likely are. But their problem with you is that you equate capitalism with the Bible. You propose a merely political solution to a spiritual problem, and that alone will never lead to God's praise. Be like Nehemiah instead, and find your solutions through the Bible. Most importantly, Nehemiah, this is something we need to do, he applies Scripture to himself. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he owned up to his own role in this unbiblical practice. He says, we have been, have been lending. Now, I do need to tell you this, disclosure here, some scholars think that Nehemiah is complaining here that he and his family have been doing what Moses said. They've been, they've been giving and supporting the poor on their own, basically doing it all alone. That could be what verse 10 is saying. I don't think so, because the simplest reading of the text would be that Nehemiah recognizes that he's been wrong. He recognizes that he had defaulted to the ethics of the world situation around him. Please don't misunderstand. Charging interest was anything but illegal in the empire. In fact, we have records of Persian interest rates running upwards of 60% APR. Wouldn't you like to get that on your investment stand? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, 
Absolutely no, no one back in Susa would have thought twice about making money in this situation. They would have said that's perfectly fine. And that's what makes Nehemiah's about face all the more dramatic. He realizes that this redeemed community is one, even if it has all kinds of groups and divisions. Look, look at this speech. Go to verse 8. Look at this speech before the large assembly in verse 8. You see a term repeated. Do you see it? Buy back. Buy back is repeated. That is a major scriptural idea. The fancy word for it in the New Testament is redemption. Redemption literally means to be bought back. These layers of Hebrew families have all benefited from the restoration buyback program that has revived their community. It has made it a truly redeemed community. But now they're doing things that undermine the very definition of their redeemed community. Of course, you and I read that and we smugly think, thank goodness we're not like that. Think hard and carefully, please. What are some accepted practices of the world around us that actually undermine redeemed community when those practices are employed in the church? Have you ever thought about this? I have some. Let me share just a little bit of what I've come up with. Here's a few things that I think deeply undermine redeemed community. And we, like Nehemiah, if indeed he was charging interest, we slip into them without even noticing. We become just like the world around us. Here's a few. Number one, I think, is hypersensitivity. It's a serious problem. Our culture right now is as hypersensitive as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Have you ever thought about what hypersensitivity does to community? I'll, t I'll tell you what I'm pretty sure it does. It drives agape love underground. You don't feel like you can really show affection. In fact, I think hypersensitivity destroys expression of love more than persecution does. I really do. Here's another one I've thought about, another common world practice that undermines redeemed community, lawsuits. They're important in the world, they are, but they are forbidden between individual Christians because they destroy community. What about sexual mores? Can you think of some practices that are applauded by society but, but actually damage God's churches, damage Christians? I can think of lots of sexual practices that are very much practiced by everyone else that are really bad for the church. Here's another one. How about playing the victim? Playing the victim is a really perverted way to get ahead in our society. It's often used but it, kill, it absolutely kills any chance of equal unity, destroys it. One more, the objectification of people. This is seen everywhere on this globe from profiling to strip joints. Objectification of humans makes redeemed community impossible Impo because you, you can't be in community with an object. To be real reformers, we have got to apply the Scriptures to ourselves, and like Nehemiah, we have to admit where we are convicted all God's people said, amen. amen. Nehemiah was trustworthy in his first role as, as cupbearer, trustworthy in his second role as reformer, and finally as governor, his third role, because Nehemiah was trustworthy with power. Incredibly rare thing. Read the next two verses, verses 14 and 15. Furthermore, from the day of King Artaxerxes, the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, in the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but I didn't do this because of the fear of God. We don't know exactly when Artaxerxes made Nehemiah governor. It could have been in their initial conversation. It, it likely was when Nehemiah made a short trip back to Babylon from Judah. It may have just been something that arrived by royal messenger. But however he got it, this is a really big deal to be named governor. Let me, let me show you something else that will help you understand how big a deal it was. Um, 400 years after Nehemiah, a Roman uh, senator named Cicero was given the governorship of a province actually fairly close to Judah, and he wrote a lot about that experience. 
And if you want to understand Nehemiah, I recommend you read Kikoro's letters. Uh, he sounds very much like Nehemiah. He sounds very much like an egotistical version of Nehemiah. Uh, each of them points out how most governors are concerned only with getting money and power for themselves. Most governors care very little about the burdens they impose on people. You see, in every ancient and classical culture, every one, a governor, a representative of the king, was allowed to add whatever tax they wanted onto the normal tax. And it could be as high as they wished for it to be. It was to make sure that the governor had plenty of food and security and servants and et cetera, et cetera. The only balancing consideration was that if the governor's burdens were too heavy, then the people might complain to the emperor. And if their complaint got through, which was admittedly a very small chance, if it got through, the governor could be called home in disgrace and, and even lose his head. But since the odds of that were slim, most Persian governors saw their role like this. This is remarkable. Look at this. I, I was very blessed to get to see this a few years ago uh, from the Persian Museum. This is a great relief that was in one of the palaces at Ekbaktana, the, the summer palace of the Persian emperors, and this is how they viewed service, right? Here's the throne, and it is upheld by all of the labors of all the little people underneath. And actually, these are three different striations of society here. That is how they viewed the upholding of the throne. By contrast, Proverbs 20, 28 declares the biblical way. Look at this. Loyalty and truth preserve the king. Loyalty, hesed, and truth preserve the king. And he upholds his throne by what, everybody? What's the last word? Righteousness. The Net Bible comment on that says this. It is the Lord and his faithful love for his covenant that ultimately makes the empire secure. But the enjoyment of divine protection requires the king to show hesed, loyal love, as well. Close quote. My fellow princesses and princes in the house of God, isn't the same true for us we need to show loyalty and reliability. That's what upholds us, not the labors of anybody else. And this doesn't only bless us. Trustworthiness and truthfulness help all the people around us as well. One of our group leaders, Ben Katsada, he was studying Nehemiah's integrity, and he sent me this note. Ben, Ben's the ugly one here. Um, he said, Wayne... I'm sending you an article about how trustworthiness is critical for effective teams at work. It reminded me of Nehemiah's impact. And let me give you a quick digest of the article, great article he sent by Justin Bariso in Inc. Magazine. Uh, Bariso says this, the best companies are made up of great teams. You see, even, if a company full of a, even a company full of A players won't succeed if those individuals don't have the ability to work well together. That's why not too long ago, Google set out on a quest to figure out what makes a team successful. They codenamed uh, the study Project Aristotle a tribute to the philosopher's famous quote that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And, and then he goes into a lot of details about how they defined effectiveness and what they measured. Here's the bottom line, very end of the article. So what did they find? The researchers found that what really mattered was less about who's on the team and more about how the team worked together. What matters most is trust, close quote. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have some sad news for you. Um, if you research Project Aristotle, as I did, you will find that Google missed the most critical aspect. <laughs> it's really sad. They missed the most critical aspect, that, that to have trust, you've got to develop trustworthy people. You can't have trust without trustworthy people. Don't you miss that. Those, of, those who are trustworthy with power, they build effective teams. Now, this applies to all of us as a priesthood of all believers, everyone who believes in Christ, but it can be especially important to remind church staff about trustworthiness. That's why Baptist leader Tom Rayner recently wrote this excellent article. I want to read you all of this. It's really good. Tom Rayner writes, don't do stupid. Those were three words I spoke to my three sons as they were growing up, and I would give them specific ways they could do stupid. Why did I speak so bluntly to my three sons? Because I loved them because I truly want what's best for them, because I want to give them clear and powerful warnings to keep them out of trouble. 
Pastors and other church leaders, please heed the words in this post. Please understand that this counsel comes from a guy who's been around a while, a guy who has seen stupid more times than he would ever want. For some reason, some church leaders just don't think they'll get caught. Or they think the baby steps won't lead to major steps toward a total fall. Please read these four acts of stupidity carefully and prayerfully and ask God to protect you from falling in any of these areas. Number one, flirting with sexual boundaries. By the time the physical sexual affair takes place, the pastor's already crossed several sexual boundaries. Don't think it can't happen to you. Number two, plagiarism. Don't ever copy that first sermon. I get messages on social media, by the way, I do as well from people, where members and staff share with me that their pastors are plagiarizing. They know. Don't do it. Number three, financial stupidity. A church credit card can be very helpful. A church credit card can be very dangerous. Don't even think about putting a personal charge on your credit card. If you have any doubt about a financial matter, err on the side of total caution. Number four, social media madness. There's simply no upside. Avoid sarcastic and bombastic comments. Don't take on a church member on Twitter or Facebook. Don't be that constant critic and never, ever, ever make unsavory or sexual comments. And if you think it's unfair that you can't do what others do, get another job. The office of pastor and other church leadership positions as well demand you demonstrate total integrity. Pastors and other church leaders, you have enough bullets being fired by critics and bullies. You certainly don't need self-inflicted wounds. And if it's one of the big four above, it will probably get you fired. Please don't. Do stupid, close quote. All my friends who serve in ministry, please remember that the abuse of power was a cause for removing an Old Testament priest. And all Christians who by definition are a kingdom of priests, act like Nehemiah and be trustworthy with power. Let's use our powers for good. All God's people said? Amen. So look at the application question in your notes. Take a look. How can I become less stupid and more like Nehemiah. We're going to cover these quickly. First thing, we must be faithful in little things. Little things. Jesus said in his parable of the stewards, uh, Matthew 25, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. We must start with little things, small acts of integrity. If we don't, we never get to the big ones. At a conference one time, I was really struck. I was in a small symposium uh, with a bunch of younger guys, and there was an older fellow there, a business leader, and he looked at all of us after listening to us for a while, and he said something very striking. He said, you guys want everything now without having to show that you are faithful in small things and hard times. That would be disastrous for your companies and yourselves. Close quote. We must enjoy the little things and be reliable stewards of them. And by the way, this matters not merely for this life. It affects our service in the kingdom to come, which is Jesus' point in Matthew 25. Second, we must think beyond ourselves. Read with me Proverbs 20, verse 7. You get the underlined part. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Blessed are his children after him. Righteousness is hard. <laughs> it's impossible without God, in fact. But integrity richly blesses others. Therefore, I must think of my integrity as an inheritance of my children. I do not live for myself. My trustworthiness is a gift that I'm expected to leave for those who come after me, just, just as we're all blessed by those who were righteous before us. What kind of selfish lunatic would take a child's inheritance and spend it all on himself? Even the world calls that fraud. And yet it happens all the time. Just last month, a young father told me, and I quote, Pastor Wayne, I need to be happy. 
close quote. He, there, he then went on to tell me that because he needs to be happy, his wife and young son should be perfectly fine with him having a mistress. This guy was a Christian. Please, don't do stupid. Think beyond yourself. Proverbs 10, 23 lays out a great contrast. Look at, look at Proverbs 10, 23. Um, doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. Here's our third way to be like Nehemiah. We must grow up and stop playing with folly, with wickedness. When we grow up and become wise, you know what he's saying? It's fun. It's fun. It's like sports. Far from being boring, trustworthiness is full of action. It's full of adrenaline. But we are a culture that seems dedicated to sporting with unrighteousness. Sociologist uh, Mark Regnerus of the University of Texas has studied this extensively. Uh, he, he looks into the costs of sexual promiscuity in a really sharp book called Cheap Sex. And uh, Regnerus says this, For American men, sex has become rather cheap. As compared to the past, many women today expect little in return for sex in terms of time, attention, commitment, or fidelity. Men, in turn, do not feel compelled to supply these goods as they once did. It's a new sexual norm for Americans, men and women alike of every age. Many young men and women still aspire to marriage as it has long been conventionally understood, faithful, enduring, focused on raising children, but they no longer seem to think they no longer seem to think that this aspiration requires their discernment, prudence, or self-control. It turns out that a world in which it is possible to satisfy our sexual desires much more immediately carries with it a number of unhappy and unintended consequences. Close quote. How can I become less stupid and more like Nehemiah? Be faithful in little things. Think beyond myself. Grow up and start sporting with integrity instead of playing with folly that destroys souls, marriages, and society. And finally, number four, we must embrace accountability. We must speak truth and love to each other and stop facilitating or ignoring sin. Read with me. Popular text, Proverbs 27, 17, all together. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. If you haven't let people sharpen you, if you don't seek out a life group or a Bible study or accountability partners or a mentor, somebody to speak hard truth to you, you will not become fully trustworthy, period. Just take the first step. Take the first step and belay the excuses, please. I don't know anyone. Get to know someone. Get to know someone. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. Well, you know what? You won't be for long because people who aren't fully trustworthy get less and less in demand as time goes by. You're going to have lots of time on your hands because nobody wants to be with an unreliable person. Make time. I don't, I don't know what to do. Bull. Sorry, forgive me. I grew up in the country. Bull crap, okay? You do know what to do. You just don't want to. Okay, let me say this. If by some chance you actually don't have any idea how to ask somebody to help you grow up, you don't have any idea how to make a friend, how to engage, that's fine. Write me. Write me. I will help. I will put you in touch with one of our pastors, and they will guide you right through it. It'll be awesome. Let's embrace accountability. Let's take the first step. And in fact, the first step is being accountable before God, right? So let's pray. Let's pray together. Pray with me. Lord, in our many roles, let us, let us be reliable like Nehemiah. Especially change us to be faithful in things that seem little to us, to think beyond ourselves, to, to grow up and stop playing with folly, and to seek out accountability. Lord, I pray that I and my brethren are changed to become reliable. And I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen.